2: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network, I'm David Kunzman, I will be your host for today. I have the pleasure of having two guests today, Jeffrey S. Smith and Brent C. Landau, to talk about their newest book, The Seeker Gospel of Mark, a Controversial Scholar, a Scandalous Gospel of Jesus and the Fierce Debate Over Its Authenticity, published by Yale University Press in 2023. Jeffrey S. Smith is an Associate Professor Fellow at the Louise Farmer-Boyer Chair in Biblical Studies and the Director of the Institute for the Study of Antiquity and Christian Origins in the Religious Studies Department of the University of Texas at Austin. And Brent C. Lando is an Associate Professor of of Instruction in Religious Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. I hope you enjoy the interview for today. So we usually like to start our interviews by asking our guests uh, just about their current background and uh, how did they come to write their uh, current work? So Brent and Jeff, how did you come to write to The Secret Gospel of Mark? Uh,
0: yeah, I, I uh, this is Brent. I think I can probably address this. So... Both Jeff and I are specialists in early Christian apocryphal literature, writings that were not included in uh, in the New Testament, uh, and uh, we also had a longstanding uh, interest, uh, mutual interest, in manuscript studies, uh, going back to uh, graduate work that we both did at Harvard, where we learned some of the ins and outs of manuscripts. Um And so this was sort of in the background for a while. And then, uh, I was teaching a graduate seminar, uh, at, at UT Austin on, uh, Christian apocrypha and invited Jeff to come down, uh, because we were talking about the secret gospel of Mark that day. And it's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting and, and, you know, controversial text and, you know, invited him to join the conversation, uh, and the th- one of the things that Jeff noticed uh, based on one of the books that I had brought in was he had never actually seen a picture of the manuscript before. And the manuscript, if uh, uh, I don't know if, um, if there's a, any, any way that be, uh, re, uh, lit hearers can, can have access to, to photographs or anything like that, but um, the manuscript itself is very, very intricate Greek cursive of the 18th century. Basically, it's the sort of thing that would be really, really hard to forge. And once we, you know, once we sort of Came to grasps with the fact that this is a very very difficult product to uh, for anyone to have forged, especially someone whose command of you know Greek uh, writing wasn't you know perfect. Uh, then it was then it was a, uh, all of a sudden a question of well maybe this text isn't a 20th century forgery. Maybe we need to come up with another explanation for where it comes from.
1: Yeah. And so I would say that the, you know, well while we have had interest in manuscripts and apocryphal literature in the past, our interest in the secret gospel of Mark really was born out of uh, sort of teaching in this case, Brent's teaching. Um, and um, I was very happy that he invited me to come down because the secret gospel of Mark is a text I'd been sort of meaning to, to look into. But I also knew on the basis of some hallway conversations in graduate school that there were some um, interesting kind of ideas surrounding the text, and maybe maybe I should avoid it in my own uh, um, publications. But uh, I thought, hey, let's let's talk about the text. And um, and as Brent said, I was absolutely shocked uh, once I saw a picture of that manuscript because prior to that, I probably had just assumed Morton Smith forged it. And after seeing a picture of the manuscript, I thought there is no possible way that he could have executed a hand like that.
2: So it. So at the beginning of the book, you you draw out the scene that happened in 1960 at the SBL meeting in New York, I believe, uh, where Morton Smith gave the announcement of his discovery. Could you just, um, I guess, just expand upon that? Yeah,
1: sure. So Smith actually discovers the manuscript at the Tower Library in Marsaba two years earlier, 1958. And he has some sort of uh, quiet consultations with other scholars over the course of the two years before he finally releases or uh, debuts the manuscript and his interpretation of it. So there was only a handful of people that knew that this thing existed when, in, in uh, I believe it was December of 1960, Morton Smith um, uh, you know, get, uh, gives, a, gives a talk in the Horace Mann Auditorium. Uh, which seats uh, several hundred people um, uh, and introduces this text to the world. Now he also uh, had arranged to have at the same time um, an, an announcement of the manuscript uh, of its discovery on the front page of the New York Times, and he also invited media um, to the uh, to the event as well, which was you know not unprecedented but certainly unusual for a a meeting of the society of biblical literature for there to be media there. And, um, he, uh, we, we, we interviewed a couple people who were there and we also read some notes from some people who were actually there for that 1960 meeting. And, um, it's clear from that, that Smith is, is, is presenting the manuscript to the world for the first time in an even-handed way and, and doing some fairly um, detailed linguistic analysis of the text, but that he's also making jokes or intimations that would that really ruffled the feathers of a lot of the people in attendance that day and who were largely conservative white male academics who were also um, religious uh, members of the clergy or, or prominent members of their own churches.
2: So I guess this question goes to Brent. Uh, for people that are not initiated, what is the secret gospel of Mark? Is it an actual gospel like we see like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or is it consistent in a different form?
0: Yeah. So the the secret gospel of Mark, as, as we have it, is – basically what what we would refer to as a fragment meaning that we've we've only got uh, a small segment of what is you know supposedly the secret gospel of mark now one of the questions that we address in our book is how much more uh, than the secret, uh, than what we have of the secret gospel of Mark, uh, how extensive was this text? Um, at least the way it is presented in the letter uh, attributed to Clement of Alexandria, uh, where where we get the text quoted, it's supposedly uh, a, a text that's as long as the Gospel of Mark, but as Clement says in that letter, it's a it's a sort of alternate version of the Gospel of Mark. Something that was basically designed and and uh, produced by Mark himself for um, only the most spiritually sophisticated Christians in Alexandria. Uh, So you know, it's almost as if like the regular version of Mark that. Shows up in everybody's New Testament, that would be sort of the dumbed down version that, uh, that most people, uh, would have had access to. But then there was this secret version that was for the more spiritually sophisticated Christians. Um, and, uh, according to the excerpt that is in this letter of Clement, it, uh, if, is a story about Jesus uh, raising a young man from the dead. It sounds quite similar to the story of the raising of Lazarus from John chapter 11. Uh, But in this text, when Jesus brings the young man back to life, the young man is said to look at Jesus and love him and begs to be with him. And Jesus seems to accept these uh, these overtures because he goes and stays in the young man's house for a week. Uh, we also learn that the young man was wealthy, which is probably how he has uh, a house of his own. Then, after uh, staying together in the same house for six days, uh, Jesus gives the young man some instructions. And apparently in response to these instructions, the young man comes to Jesus uh, at nighttime wearing nothing but a linen cloth like a bedsheet over his naked body. And the fragment then says that they stayed up all night uh, and Jesus taught him the mysteries of the kingdom of God uh, so it's it's a very intriguing very suggestive um and and potentially explosive uh fragment um so yeah, that's that's essentially what is in the secret gospel, and this is uh, as as Jeff was saying, um, Morton Smith in when he introduced this text to the to the world in 1960, he didn't shy away from making you know cracks about the you know seemingly obvious uh, sexual
2: nature of the text. So I my, I guess my next question is. That raises the question: Did Morn Smith think the Secret Gospel of Mark was authentic for purely linguistic or textual reasons, or was it, or did he have other reasons why he thought it might have been authentic to Clement?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a difficult question to answer. Um, you know, his process seems to have been that he started by trying to authenticate the letter of Clement. Um, because, as, as Brent said, these, these excerpts from the secret gospel are embedded or quoted within this, this letter that, that Clement of Alexandria allegedly wrote to an otherwise unknown guy named Theodore. And so what he, he did and what he largely presents um, in 1960 is his analysis of the letter of Clement to Theodore. And on the basis of some tools that he had at his disposal, which allowed him to compare the language of the letter with the language of Clement and writings that are known to have been written by him, he comes to conclude that Clement did in fact compose this letter. Now Clement of Alexandria is active in the late second century. So if Clement wrote the letter, the gospel fragments could have been written by Mark or they could have been written later, but it still would be relatively early in the history of Christianity. And so I think once Morton Smith, um, Uh, came to see the letter of Clement as authentic, he was, um, it it became more likely that he was going to locate it at the sort of tail end of the first century. um, And, 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 uh, and with, with uh, Mark the evangelist himself.
2: You did mention that um, Morin Smith consulted experts of the Greek language uh, while he was conducting his analysis. And I get they differed in their opinion about the dating. Uh, why did Morton Smith, I guess push uh, push back or go against the uh, the experts he consulted?
0: I mean, I think actually in the case of in in the case of the handwriting experts um, and Morton Smith was, you know, he had expertise in manuscripts, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't well versed in really, really late Greek hands. Um, You know, there there was some difference of opinion based on the experts in Greek handwriting that he talked to, but really not very much. Um, You know, the difference was oh you know some somebody might want to say it's late 17th century and another person another expert might you know favor the early 18th century something like that so actually the and and you know you get that sort of you know kind of disagreement or diversity um for, for pretty much any manuscript uh, uh that uh, that you know um, that we're familiar with from from our studies in, in Christianity. So it's not as if there was wasn't you know uh, unanimity among the uh, handwriting experts. I think where there where there was some pushback was that you did have several very very bright uh, scholars and people who were quite. Uh, close to Morton Smith, who uh, you know had some serious doubts about whether this was really a letter of Clement. Um, uh, a couple of them, Arthur Darby Nock, who was one of uh, Smith's mentors at Harvard, um, he he felt like this was a probably a fifth century text. It seemed to him to be a, a sort of relatively late composition. You also had a num- uh, a scholar, I believe, oh gosh, I don't remember where Johannes Monk taught. I wanted to say Episcopal Divinity School, but that might be wrong. Um, uh, Johannes Monk also looked at it and said, you know, yeah, this says it's by Clement, but it's got things like the Mark and Alexandria tradition, which we don't know from other sources earlier than Eusebius, who's fourth century. So, um, so there were some dissenting voices about saying that this was an authentic letter of Clement, but um, yeah, Smith seems to, in those cases, even though he valued their opinions and, you know, speaks very respectfully of them, he, uh, he preferred to just plow ahead uh, and, you know, say that this was an authentic letter of Clement. And I think in part, part of why he was, you know, so drawn to it being as early as possible is i mean a couple different reasons one uh that's oftentimes what you know scholars who have studied the christian apocrypha have tried to do as a way of sort of making a statement about the importance of this uh, of these texts is to you know kind of come up with the earliest uh earliest dates possible for these things even you know well into the first century um uh so I think part of why he he you know posited an early date was that sort of temptation, but he also felt like Jesus was more of a sort of esoteric uh weird teacher than and and not just sort of a kind of you know a teacher of countercultural wisdom as uh and a and a miracle worker as the gospels portrayed him. Uh, Smith was, you know, seemed seem pretty, uh, pretty confident that Jesus was weirder than than that sort of more traditional portrait that comes out of the Gospels.
1: Right. And uh, just to sort of restate something that Brent said is that when it comes to the dating of late Greek handwriting, Morton Smith is not an expert. And he knew that. And so he consulted experts. When it comes to early Christian literature, Morton Smith is you know, was an expert, was a leading expert, um, and still can, you know, decided to consult other leading experts in the field. Um, And he did still decide to kind of push his own argument, um, because, you know, he's completely entitled to do that as a leading expert in the field of early Christianity. But I will say that to his credit, he um, repeatedly reports in presentations, but also in print, the views of those who disagreed with him. And so if you go and read the Harvard monograph, for example, you can see in parentheses and sometimes in brackets, uh, the um, views of people that disagreed with him on key points along with their initials so that you can, you you know, scholars later can say, okay, well, you know, Monk disagreed with him on this. So I think that is something that is definitely to his credit.
0: And, and something that we, you know, it's pretty rare to see that level of transparency, uh, you know, even today, uh, you know, yeah, there, there might be some, you know, in scholarship, there might be some vague allusions to, you know, some people who may disagree. But I mean, Smith was very, very open about the fact that his interpretation of this didn't match up completely with the thoughts of a number of other people whose opinions he, you know, greatly respected.
2: And did his model of the historical Jesus inform his interpretation of the secret gospel of Mark? Or was, the, or was it the other way around? Did his reading of the secret gospel of Mark inform his model of the historical Jesus? <sighs> I think... Yeah, go ahead, Jeff.
1: Yeah, this is a tricky one. I think it's a bit of a dialectic. But I do think that he already had these pre-existing questions that he was looking for answers to. And we know this because Morton Smith actually wrote an entire book on Mark um, that he never published uh, as a book. He may he may have parted out pieces of it in later articles, but he had written this book, and this was in the 1950s. He had written it, um, given it to his mentor to review, uh, Arthur Darby Knock, and Knock was not persuaded, and so then typical Morton Smith, he dug his heels in and decided to try and make the case even stronger to prove Arthur Darby Knock wrong. Um, now, when, when he finds the secret gospel of Mark, he's already at the tail end of this, this prior work on Mark. And we don't know what his thesis was, but what he was hunting for in that book certainly informed his, his understanding of the secret gospel. He also seemed to have been fixated on this question of mysticism of this sort of mystical tradition that is very, very prominent in Judaism, uh, particularly in medieval Jewish texts like the Hekelod and the Zohar and the Kabbalah. Um, But it also shows up in early Christian sources as well, like, say, the Books of Jehu or some of the apocalyptic apocalyptic ascent literature. And what he wanted to find was that nexus, that moment um, in the historical Jesus' ministry in his lifetime where you could find the origins of that mysticism. And um, and, and lo and behold, that nocturnal ritual that um, Brent alluded to, that sounds to most readers um, fairly erotic and suggestive to Morton Smith, at least in print, he argued that this was uh, the sort of birth of Christian mysticism. Um, Now, I think he probably modified some of his views through the years he dedicated to studying the secret gospel of Mark but there's no doubt that he had these prior assumptions that allowed him, in our opinion, to overinterpret the text at times.
2: So another school of thought in the scholarship of the secret gospel of Mark is that actually it was a 20th century forgery by Warren Smith himself. And you go over this in your uh, skeptic chapter, and one of, the, I guess, one of the main proponents of this was Quentin Quisnell. Could you please expand, like, why Quisnell thought that morn Smith forged the secret gospel of Mark himself?
0: Yeah, so with with Quentin Quisnell, um, certainly he is a major player in what I would call, what we would call the pro-forgery uh, camp uh of uh of the secret gospel of mark basically people who think that this was a modern forgery that was uh perpetrated by morton smith the first scholar we know of who you know makes that argument that that smith has forged it uh was quentin quesnel uh he was a um uh, he was a Roman Catholic priest, I think at the time that, uh, so he had been teaching at Marquette University, uh, and then he had uh, uh, changed, uh, uh, moved to Smith College in, in Massachusetts. Um, and he, uh, he wrote Morton Smith and asked him for more information about the manuscript that Smith had discovered at Marsaba because uh Smith had published his you know data about this manuscript and other manuscripts from Marsaba in a catalog but the catalog was um you know only in a few libraries and it was it was quite hard to find back then so uh Quesnel was was basically asking for Smith's help and, you know kind of tracking down a couple questions he had um and so then, as often happens, Morton Smith had a lot of, you know, kind of extensive correspondence with, uh, with different scholars. And he and Quesnell went back and forth uh, in Quesnell's um, uh, letters to Smith. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't think he ever, you know, articulated his suspicion that it was a forgery, but he sort of asked asked Smith about, you know, well, why didn't you take it out of the, why didn't you take it out of the monastery? Or why didn't you have scientific testing done or things like that? And, you know, basically Smith's answer to all of these, you know, why, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Questions from, from Quesnel was, well, you know, it wasn't my manuscript. Like there weren't actually you know, good places, uh, to do scientific testing. I mean, this, you know, monastery is in the middle of the desert, uh, South of Jerusalem. And so, um, you know, they basically had this exchange and then Quesnel comes out, uh, uh, about a year later with an article in Catholic biblical quarterly. So, uh, you know, one of the, m- Main uh, scholarly j- journals of uh, academic biblical studies, and he basically accuses Morton Smith of not providing enough documentation uh, about his find, so that you know we so that everybody could determine that it was authentic, and says you know until. Uh, until Martin Smith gives us more information about his discovery and the the circumstances under which he found it, we, you know, have to allow for the possibility that this is a forgery. Um, and, you know, Smith replied, uh, wrote an official response to Quesnel's article. Um, and you would have thought that, you know smith cuz he was a pretty cantankerous guy that that he would have been much more combative and much more sort of offended by these forgery allocate, uh, allegations but they just sort of rolled off of him and he made a defense of it basically you know kind of disputing several of quesnel's points but maybe didn't you know didn't stick up for himself enough um and and so then one other factor that came uh came to light with with Quesnel was even though he had said oh i've just got questions about you know kind of the finding of the manuscript and it seems a little sketchy and, and stuff and uh smith had at, had said to him well your problem is clearly with with the content of the text you don't like the fact that this is you know jesus being depicted in a homoerotic relationship and um and quesnel denied this uh to smith said no that's... I, I don't care about that. But um, uh, Quisnel had also written right about the same time uh, for National Catholic Reporter, which is more of a popular journal periodical. He had written a review of Smith's book. And in that book, uh, or in that review, Quesnell essentially says, okay, this is this is a fun game that scholars like to play where they come up with some wacky text and wacky idea and, you know, give it the most scandalous, most offensive spin they possibly could on it. And so when you read that uh, review uh, by Quesnell and the Na- National Catholic Reporter, it becomes pretty clear that he was, uh, he was offended. So in... In conclusion, about uh, uh, the the role of Quentin Quisnell in this controversy, um, I we think that Quentin Quesnel was maybe uh, rather disingenuous about what his objections to the Secret Gospel of Mark were, and in terms of his criticisms that Morton Smith didn't do enough to you know kind of safeguard the manuscript, uh, we don't actually think that his arguments had a lot of merit to it. He certainly alerted the, um, authorities at Marsaba to the fact that he had found something interesting, but it was again, not something that he, uh, it was not his property to take out. Um, so, uh, we feel like, uh, the, the criticisms raised by Quesnell about Smith's handling of it were uh, were not very fair, but ultimately what they led to was other you know other voices coming into the picture uh, coming into the debate and raising you know and framing the matter, even more provocatively than Quesnell did. Quesnell never actually came right out and said that he thought Smith forged it. Although if you read between the lines in his publications, it's clear that he thinks that Smith was the author of it. But I think what Quesnell's contribution to the debate was that it sort of emboldened people who were really troubled by the content of the secret gospel of Mark to, uh, to, to really come up with even more, um, you know, sort of even more provocative theories and explanations for how and why Morton Smith might have forged something like this.
2: The next two figures that you take on in the book are Metzger and Ehrman. Um, Jeff, could you tell the listeners their contributions to this debate?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll actually uh, pass that torch off to Brent since he was the one who did the, the lion's share of the research on this part of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I can I can I can take that on. So what what was going on? Um, the, the reason that Metzger and Airman came into the picture um, was was because of a one of the things that I was trying to do was to document sort of the history of the forgery accusations. And I had certain kind of, you know, uh, certain mile markers along my journey where it was like, okay, well there's Quisnell in 1974, 1975. Then the forgery accusations tend to die down for a little while. And then you get some claims in the early 1990s, right about the time of, Smith's death by his former student Jacob Neusner, uh, and Neusner argues that uh, that Smith pulled off a forgery. But then the next sort of major um, sort of stop is that in you know two thousand what is it two thousand three two thousand four two thousand five there are a couple books that come out. Uh, one by Stephen Carlson, and one by Peter Jeffrey. And both of these books, in their own ways, make an argument that, um, uh, that Smith forged the document. And so what I was trying to do was figure out, okay, well, how did they get this idea? How did they come up with um, you know, this, this, this theory that, that Smith had done this and they both were coming up with it at about the same time. And they hadn't, they didn't really seem to have had, you know, been in conversation with each other. And in looking through, uh, Carlson and Jeffrey's books, what I realized was that, uh, they were, uh, uh, part of the missing piece there was Bart Ehrman. Uh, so Bart Ehrman is, you know, Probably known to many of your listeners, Ehrman is one of the most uh, uh, prominent uh, biblical scholars in the world. Certainly has has done uh, done amazing work um, popularizing uh, the the sorts of work that that scholars do, and you know has has written a number of New York Times bestsellers like Misquoting Jesus and uh, and uh, um, Uh, Jesus Interrupted and some other books like that, that, that basically explore these ideas. And Ehrman is often thought of as a pretty liberal biblical scholar. He's, you know, he's not a conservative, even though he comes from a conservative background. But what I realized in reading carefully through Ehrman's publications was that even though he tends to sort of come down on more liberal positions for a lot of, uh, the issues that, that he cares about in biblical scholarship, his remarks about the secret gospel of Mark, particularly in his book, um, Lost Christianities, which came out, I believe in the year 2000, um, he seemed very skeptical of, uh, uh of of the secret gospel of mark and very open much more open than i would have expected from airman about the uh, possibility that morton smith had actually forged it and i was thinking okay well what's what's motivating airman this doesn't really seem to be very much in character but then as as i read you know his discussion of it i realized how how often he was citing the views of his uh, doctoral dissertation advisor, uh, a guy named Bruce Metzger at uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. And Bruce Metzger was much more conservative than Bart Ehrman is today. And I think that uh, in large part, if you if you look at uh, Metzger, what Metzger has said about, you know, uh, the Secret Gospel of Mark and questions about its authenticity. If you look at that, and then you juxtapose that next to what Bart Ehrman has said, there's not a lot of daylight between them. I think this was a you know kind of an interesting instance of Ehrman, even though he has parted ways with his uh, with his doctoral advisor on so many different. Uh, in so many different directions, this seemed to be something where he kind of uncritically repeated uh, allegations made by Metzger.
2: So when you, Brent, and Jeff decided to take up the secret gospel of Mark, what was your process on trying to look at this afresh and not being, I guess, tied to certain previous schools of thought?
1: Yeah, so, um, so if, if we had, I would say, um, an initial starting point, it was the manuscript. As Brent said, when we sat in that seminar together, we saw the picture of the manuscript, started talking about how difficult it would be for um, a non-native Greek writer Um to execute something like this. And beyond that, somebody who was not formally trained in uh, Greek calligraphy from a certain um, generation or two in, in, in modern Greek history, once we realized that that could not have been Morton Smith, then we just started considering other possibilities. Now we did think that the language was suggestive. There's some who don't see any erotic, um undertones or overtones in the text and we we disagree with that i think it's clear that there's something going on there but for us it was difficult to tell what kind of a discourse um jesus's interaction with the young man participated in where in history are people talking like this about same-sex relationships so um what we did is we started at the beginning and we wanted to determine if we thought that Clement of Alexandria actually composed this letter. And after a careful review of the of the language of the text, we did see the similarities that Morton Smith pointed out between Clement's genuine writings and this, this letter to Theodore, but we also saw some different affinities. Um, we saw some really interesting, some striking parallels with the language of Eusebius in the ecclesiastical history. And as Brent has mentioned before, Eusebius was a fourth century writer, and his uh, um, ecclesiastical history was a a um, sort of uh, universal history of the church. Uh, and it was very, very influential in antiquity um, as it remains today uh, in in certain communities. And once we saw those those similarities between this so-called letter of Clement and Eusebius' ecclesiastical history, it seemed to us that actually whoever penned this letter knew Eusebius. And if that's the case, it could not have been authentic Uh, an authentic letter of Clement. Clement died well before Eusebius wrote his ecclesiastical history. So that enabled us to kind of push it post-4th century, like late 4th century or later. At the same time, we contacted experts in Greek handwriting, a whole new crop of experts, and there seemed to have been a consensus uh, that the handwriting um, was not, you know, 20th century. It was actually a fairly well-executed 18th century hand. So that gave us a terminus postquem, the 4th century, and a terminus quem of the 18th century. So then we just started reading wildly within that that, um, you know, that, that massive time period to try and figure out if we could come up with a, a place and a time in which a text like this would make sense. Uh, and ultimately uh, we settled on late antique, late antique Palestinian monasticism, Um, as the, the, the place and the time where this makes the most sense as a text.
0: And, and if I can just jump in there, uh, you know late antique Palestinian monasticism was not sort of an out of left field theory because uh, you know we talked about starting with the with the manuscript and, and starting our inquiries with the data from the manuscript. And that's definitely what we did. and part of that data is where where was this thing? Where was this thing hanging out? Uh, where where has it been residing? And you know it seems to have been, residing in Marsaba, which is one of the, uh, oldest continuously, o- uh, continuously occupied Christian monasteries in the world. Uh, so once we, you know, once we were trying to come up with a plausible time and, and place, we started with, well, this is where it was found. Maybe this is actually where it was
2: composed. So since your, since this book came out in your contribution or your, your theory about. The Secret Gospel of Mark, have you received any response from the scholarly community?
1: Uh, I'd say the initial responses are starting to roll in. Um, um, We've we've heard from several people that they find our solution to this quandary um, plausible. Um, and I think for us, given the nature of the data and the nature of the controversy, we would consider that a victory. <laughs> um, but we also have heard from some who are fairly entrenched in their positions, and they've been writing on this text you know, since before we started, and they are not persuaded. And I, th- and I think Brent and I are expecting that. It, it seems to be that there's sort of 10% of the scholarly world... Who um, think it's an alternative version of the secret of the Gospel of Mark written by Mark himself, and ten percent who think Morton Smith forged it, and eighty percent who just don't want to get involved. And what we see this book as uh, is as a is an invitation for that eighty percent, particularly those who are interested in the history of sexuality and those who are interested in. uh, late antiquity and the study of monasticism to get involved, because we think if there's going to be progress made, even beyond what we've done, it's going to be made by scholars who are experts in those areas.
2: So you would recommend this field of study, I guess, to up-and-coming students that are interested? Yes, def- definitely. I mean,
0: I think this is this is one of those texts that, unfortunately... And and it's 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 probably the most shining example of a text like this that has become you know has has had such a cloud of suspicion that has developed uh, over it that it has it it has essentially become radioactive and that very few scholars want to take it on and you know part of what I had to do in. In the book, uh, uh, one of my main tasks as a co-author was to go through the arguments for forgery and essentially, uh, you know, offer my take on whether or not they any of them were really compelling. Uh, and what I ultimately had to, uh, you know, conclude is that even though they're were a lot of different arguments made for forgery and a lot of really ingenious arguments like that Smith embedded, you know, references to B- Morton salt and to him being bald and all sorts of other like hidden treasures in uh, in the secret gospel of Mark. Ultimately, I had to come to the conclusion that, you know, even, there, even though there were theoretically a lot of arguments being made that pretty much none of them had really compelling substance to them. They were all... Uh, rather conspiratorial in the way that they thought about it. And so I think that the secret gospel of Mark is still very much, you know, even though we've got our, you know, theory that we like very much uh, uh, about where it came from, I would say that secret, the secret gospel of Mark is still very much uh, an unsolved mystery in the field of biblical studies. And uh, more people need to pay attention to it. I think that my, my hope would be that, You know, we've we've managed to uh, at least get, you know, hopefully some of that 80 percent to uh, to realize that, you know, the idea that Morton Smith forged this just doesn't hold a lot of water and that we've still got a weird text that we need to figure out where it came from.
1: Yeah, and I would add to that, too, that um, not I don't think it's come up so far, but the manuscript has disappeared so the the last time it was seen i believe was 1983 by quentin quesnel himself at least the last time it was documented that it was seen now there's a lot of conspiracy theories as to where the manuscript went we do have pretty good photos of it that we can work off of but we would like to find the manuscript and we are you know we in the course of our investigation we we really have no reason to believe that it's anywhere but the library of the Greek patriarch of Jerusalem. And um, we think that um, it's almost certainly there, but what we're not sure of is whether it was lost at some point or whether it's being kept back from the public. And so our hope, um, you know, another hope of our book is that um, whoever knows where this manuscript is, will come forward and make it available to um, scholars and even perhaps to scientists who can subject it to scientific testing.
2: This current book that both of you have written, The Secret Gospel of Mark, is more of a popular presentation of your theory. For students that are interested, I guess, in the more technical details, do you have, a, do you have any uh, peer-reviewed articles that you could cite That, for people that are interested, I guess, going into that?
0: Not really. Uh, you know, this is this is one of those interesting cases where, you know, we, um, you know, as opposed to the way that scholars often do things where, you know, they'll write a number of articles about something and, you know, and you, you know, sort of build up a book, build up a monograph based on that. We actually did it the other way around. And I think part of it was that, you know, we felt like we had a, a pretty good you know, interesting idea about where this text might've come from. And we didn't want to necessarily, you know, steal our books thunder by publishing, publishing some articles in, um, you know, in academic journals that, that already sort of gave away our thesis. So we're, we're actually at the point where we have not, um, we have not done, you know, kind of, uh, this, this book has been peer reviewed, uh, uh, by an, anonymous scholars for Yale University Press. So it is definitely peer-reviewed, but it's not uh, it, 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 it has not uh, been the subject of, of any uh, articles thus far. What I would encourage uh, I would actually direct um, potentially interested scholars to a couple of uh, volumes that have, have already been published one of which is, uh, an, uh, edited volume by Tony Burke and it's called ancient gospel or modern forgery. And it's basically the conference proceedings of a, uh, a, of a, um, symposium on the secret gospel of Mark and questions about its authenticity that took place at York university in Toronto. Uh, so, uh, so Tony Burke's, uh, conference volume, uh, ancient uh, ancient gospel or modern forgery. I would also direct students uh, and interested scholars to uh, the book by Scott Brown. It's called Mark's Other Gospel. Uh, Scott Brown wrote his dissertation at the University of Toronto on the Secret Gospel of Mark, and Scott Brown has done a lot of work in terms of uh, arguing against uh, the you know various permutations of the forgery hypothesis. So if somebody really wants to get into this and and really wants to get into the, you know, scholarly heavy list lifting and minutia, I would say that the the Burke edited volume and Scott Brown's uh, dissertation are the places to start.
2: So I believe that's all the time we have for today, but we, before we go, we usually like to ask our guests, uh, about their current projects and what they're working on.
1: Yeah, so I'm currently uh, working on a project that deals with what I guess we we would call the archaeology of early uh, of, of early Christian manuscripts. Uh, and so there's this archaeological site uh, called Oxyrhynchus, which is named after the fish that swims in the Nile tributary uh, near the town. It's a fish with a, a sharp nose. Um, And so the city of Oxyrhynchus was a decent-sized ancient city, but it happens to be where two archaeologists named Grenfell and Hunt uh, excavated about 500,000 papyrus fragments in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And these fragments are some of our uh, earliest copies of things like Homer and Sappho and even New Testament and um, apocryphal writings like the Gospel of Thomas. Um, but there's all kinds of other material in there as well, even mundane tax receipts and letters and uh, magical texts. And so my project is trying to see what what we can determine about the archaeological context of these manuscripts that were discovered.
0: And uh, the book that I am uh, currently working on and, and revising is a book on... Uh, what I would call alternative reconstructions of the historical Jesus. So what I'm interested in here, this is a historical Jesus book, but it's a historical Jesus book almost in reverse, that it kind of takes as its starting point uh, some really provocative claims that have been made, um, you know, uh, both in recent times and, and much earlier about the historical Jesus. So if you've ever heard people say, you know, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene or that Jesus had another love interest or that Jesus went to India, or that Jesus never existed, or anything like that. Uh, these are exactly those sorts of alternative historical reconstructions that I get into in, uh, in that book. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about, uh, uh, about it seeing the light of day sometime
1: soon.
2: Brent and Jeff, thank you so much for the interview.
1: Thank
0: you very much.
1: Thank you, David.